you think about, you know, displacement is, is kind of a form of grieving, actually. I mean, you're losing something. And what we tend to see both in people that have encountered trauma and people who are grieving is any kinds of activity that they can grasp onto to feel a sense of control in their life. That was Candace Schaefer, Twitter's global head of employee wellness, talking about one of the ways employees can respond to prolonged working from home. What happens to employee mental health when you add a global pandemic to the usual stresses and strains of work and life? In this special episode of Silent Superheroes, I ask this question of two experts in the workplace mental health field and get their advice on helping employees navigate the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak. During our discussion, we identify the two key impacts of coronavirus on mental health. We discuss how companies should manage the impact of coronavirus on mental health at work, and we also look at the positive impacts we may see as a result of this crisis. My name's James Pratt, I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes Podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. Welcome to Silent Superheroes. Um, Today is the 11th of uh, March, and we are in the middle of an outbreak of a new disease, uh, which I'm certain you've heard of called COVID-19 or coronavirus. Uh, There have been 118,000 recorded cases worldwide as of today and 4.2 thousand deaths. And actually, it happens today that the World Health Organization has described this as a pandemic. A number of companies to help stop the spread of the disease have uh, decided to send their populations uh, home from work uh, to work at home. I looked at the website called stayinghome.club today, which has 128 companies listed um, as either working from home or encouraging people to work from home. Uh, includes companies like Adobe, Airbnb, Amazon, Apple, Asana, Atlassian, and that's only the A's. In fact, that's not even all the A's. Uh, companies you'll know like uh, Dell, eBay, Expedia, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, Microsoft, Pinterest, Salesforce, Spotify, Twitch, uh, Twitter, and Uber have all got um, some kind of work from home uh, guidelines in uh, in place. So as uh, these companies are telling people to work from home, they are wrestling with all sorts of new logistical challenges, like do people have equipment to work at home? How are we going to communicate? But one of the things that I haven't heard many people speak about yet are the potential impacts to mental health. And so today we're going to discuss uh, how this outbreak and these policies around working from home are affecting employees. And we're going to suggest uh, what companies can do to support their employees through this um, through this outbreak. And I said we a few times there. Uh, it's not just me. So I have with me uh, Dr. Candice Schaefer, uh, PhD, and Dr. Myra Altman, PhD, which I realize in both cases uh, I uh, was completely reductive and uh, gave you a doctor title and pointed out your PhD. It's okay. We like it. We'll take it. <laughs> 
Candice is the uh, head of global head of employee wellness at uh, Twitter. She's done stints at Facebook and also Department of Veteran Affairs. Her PhD is in counseling psychology from the University of Kansas. So, Candice, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And then I also have Dr. Myra Altman. Uh, Myra is the head of clinical care for a company called, a tech company called Modern Health. She holds a PhD in clinical psychology from Washington University in St. Louis and was a postdoctoral fellow in healthcare innovation at um, Stanford. So, Myra, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. So, Candice, um, talk to us a little bit about what you do as the global head of employee wellness at Twitter. Uh, so, for me, I uh, oversee all the programs, initiatives, anything related to wellness. And um, I try to aim it more as a preventative um, part of health, not just the reactive side. So, all employers have medical plans and um, dental plans, things like that. But for me, um, I'm looking more at how do I create programs within Twitter that creates a culture of we take care of ourselves and we're proactively taking care of ourselves. Um, because one of the biggest issues in uh, tech and a lot of other industries is um, burnout. Uh, so a lot of my goals are related to that. Um, and then um, in addition to that, I also do work related to our um, employees that work with graphic and sensitive content. Um, so uh, there's uh, a lot out there in terms of we don't know how this can affect people. And so I'm uh, on staff as a psychologist to kind of create preventative um, programming and training for our employees that work with this type of stuff. Curious person in me wants to ask about 100 more <laughs> questions about that because it's a fascinating you know, part, I think, of, of social networks and social media. But we don't have time for that today. Um, so, Myra, let's uh, turn our attention to you. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do as the head of clinical care and maybe also, um, you know, what is uh, Modern Health? Yeah, absolutely. So, I'll start at the end there with what Modern Health is. So, we're a mental health benefits platform. So, we work with other companies to provide comprehensive and holistic support for their employees. So, Similarly to how Candice was mentioning where there's physical health benefits for employees, how do we treat mental health the same way? So we think about it very holistically on a spectrum from green to red, um, and everyone falls somewhere on that spectrum of mental health needs. So how do we support them proactively, preventively, but then also from a treatment lens? Um, so my role as VP of clinical care, um, I head up essentially all the types of care that we provide. So I manage our coaching network, our therapist network, as well as the digital content we provide. Um, and then also work really cross-functionally in our organization to make sure everything we're doing uh, makes sense from a clinical standpoint, whether that's working directly with the companies that we work with on helping them um, set up their benefits um, or making sure that the product team is really implementing the best behavioral solutions. And if I uh, you know, might speak from my personal experience of modern health, uh, as an HR leader company I was working at, we chose to adopt uh, modern health and... Um, it was probably one of the best received benefits I've ever rolled out. Um, just illustrating the paucity of um, care that you can get through traditional benefits and the fact that it gave access to uh, coaches and, and therapists um, in an on-demand way was hugely popular. So thank you for everything you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And I think that mirrors what we're seeing. This is just such a huge need. And I know we'll we'll talk about that as it relates to the situation. But typically when we roll out at an organization, even if they don't think there's sort of mental health needs in their company, 
as soon as you provide something, just the hands start going up in the air. And, and this is something that a lot of people need. So we're, we're very grateful to partner with organizations that are taking this so seriously and really prioritizing it. Let's start by talking about what are the ways that you have seen COVID-19 affect the mental health of employees, um, you know, as they've gone out to work from home and, you know, just, just in general? Uh, I would say in uh, response to kind of what I've seen at Twitter, there's been, I think, some legitimate concern. Obviously, we don't know a lot about this um, virus, so there's a lot of uncertainty. And anytime you have uncertainty, you have anxiety. A lot of uh, our employees, I think, look to our leadership in the company to provide kind of a guidance on how they're supposed to be responding. And given how we respond is how a lot of times they're going to respond. Um, So we want to make sure that our leadership is properly informed and we are going with as factual basis as we can find. But the other thing that's been interesting for me is that one of the first responses uh, when we initiated the work from home policy was our employees that um, have salaries became concerned about our employees that are hourly and uh, that are contract and really only work inside our physical offices. They immediately were concerned that these people would not have pay. And and I was just amazed um, by that concern given kind of also what we've been seeing in Costco's and people kind of fighting over very definitive resources and um, having that compassion and, and concern has been good. But Are then you also- adequately stocked up on toilet paper? <laughs> I, this is maybe a little TMI. I got a bidet actually. So I don't worry about it. <laughs> So I'm very Dennis concerned. is always setting the bar for the rest of it. So something to know from the outset. Did you have the bidet before this outbreak, or was it like a, like no, a bit of emergency I got, plumbing? I live right by Costco's headquarters, and uh, we were still going to the stores, and there was nothing there, and so we were just like, you know what? We're gonna get a bidet. <laughs> because this is ridiculous. We did that. Um, it's a it's a good investment, I will say. Um, (laughs) but you know, in regards to our shift to working from home, the first thing we did kind of see pop up on our Slack channels was the concern around loneliness, um, and not feeling connected to the people we work with and to just have that sense of community. You know, some people are really excited, mainly introverts like myself. I was already working from home, but like introverts are usually more excited to do that work from home. Um, And uh, for other employees, you know, it's a bit challenging because they have to maybe work in a smaller home or they don't have anybody to talk to during the day um, or there's no reason to go outside. So there's kind of a lot of challenges that maybe we haven't thought about before um, that it's kind of forcing you into this new situation and problem solve, which I've been really excited to see how Twitter has been doing with that. And Myra, anything you want to add um, based on, you know, both either Modern Health sort of direct experience or any of the customers that you're working with? Yeah, we'll say a lot of what we're seeing is is really mirroring what Candice is saying. So definitely an increase in anxiety. Uh, back when I was doing more direct clinical care, like uncertainty and lack of tolerance of uncertainty is just such a huge thing for people. And so when there is no certainty on this global scale, um, I think we really seeing that exacerbating anxiety for individuals, but also then the more that we're uncertain, it causes more anxiety. So I think there's like the concerns about coronavirus and then there's the reaction to coronavirus and both are causing their own uh, different types of anxiety. 
I think social isolation, loneliness, particularly in places where they, um, like we, we saw this in China initially when there was quarantines in place where people really are forced to stay home um, and seeing that isolation really skyrocket. Um, but then just from work from home and um, about half of my company is remote at this point. And so we're starting to see this for us as well. Uh, unlike Candice, I am very much on the extroverted side of things and I'm uh, working from home, which is certainly challenging. I have my puppy, which is which is helping. But I think it's kind of an unprecedented time um, in our our way of working. And it'll be really interesting to see how it evolves and what that changes just in the way we work generally. What are some of the things um, that you think are causing that anxiety? So I think there's a few things. There's obviously there's the anxiety around the illness itself. Um, could I be contracting this? What would it mean if I did? What would it mean if my loved ones did? Um, but then I think we're seeing that's kind of on the individual level. Then there's the societal impact too. What impact is this going to have on how the world functions, right? We're seeing the stock market. Um, there's a lot of volatility. Are we going to go into a recession? What does that mean for my retirement savings? What does that mean for our ability to bounce back? And then to some of the more social pieces, like seeing a lot of discrimination come up in response to things like the coronavirus. What does it mean as a society for people who look like me or for people who don't look like me. So I think there's these multiple levels all causing anxiety for different people or in different degrees. We're um, kind of handling the dependent care, childcare situation too, as you know, schools are beginning to close um, to prevent spread of the outbreak. There's a lot of dependencies that happen within our own economy that are kind of disappearing. And so it's really challenging. I think a lot of the way people live their day-to-day life, a lot of the things that we took for granted, or we just kind of assume is there, it's not there anymore. And so it feels like the earth underneath you is coming apart. You know, even probably being two generations out from the um, second world war, I always had this sense and the feeling of the harm and the sort of danger and the struggle of living in a place where you were constantly under threat. You know, my dad was born in the, um, you know, in the time of the Blitz, for example. You know, he never had to experience it kind of as a, uh, you know, child, but certainly he was, he was there. And it occurs to me that that's not happened in the U.S. for a very, very long time, like an existential threat. It feels like almost the impact is worse because, like, there's no real frame of reference for, like, what it's like to be a society under threat. Yeah, I think this kind of it, it in many ways, I think, feels similar to like 9-11 when, uh, you know, things shut down. We didn't know how oh, yeah. to kind of handle that situation. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's so long ago now. I mean, it's over 20 years ago. And so just to think about how life stopped back then um, until we got got our grounding again. And it, it feels very similar. If I might add something, I think what's so interesting, too, is when I think about uncertainty, it is so hard for us to tolerate as humans, and yet we tolerate a ton of uncertainty day to day. And so as we're thinking about these existential threats, I think something like coronavirus, it forces it to be front and center because it's actually impacting our day to day. But if we think about kind of just the zeitgeist of the moment over the last several years, right, there's climate change, there's nuclear war tensions, there's all these things that I think have also been accumulating for people, like there's almost this there's been this expectation that something's going to happen, something big is going to happen. And now this might be that thing. And so it's how do we then respond to it? And how do we react to it when it's when we're forced to confront it? Whereas I think usually, we can go about our day to day because it doesn't impact it as much. If we think forward a second to this uh, crisis continuing to develop, 
What sort of other impacts might we start seeing kind of as, as time goes on? I know for, for me, just kind of thinking about it, especially, you know, my interest being in preventing burnout is if we have people working from home long term, you know, kind of, I think we're more vigilant when we first start working from home for the first time, we're aware to kind of keep those boundaries with work and with your personal life. But as time tends to go on and stress increases, and that can become a little less cognizant for a lot of people. And so I think there's, you know, potentially a risk for work life balance lines to to blur a little bit more if we don't kind of stay cognizant in front of it. And then, you know, I also think there's that that sense of uncertainty that we were talking about. A lot of scientists have said, you know, we're not going to have a vaccine until next year at the earliest, and we don't know how long this is going to go on. And so to kind of prolong when we will get back to normalcy, or will this become the new normal is really challenging from a a cognitive perspective. And that feels like more of the anxiety. Yeah, and I think it's going to depend so much on what direction this goes, right? Is it going to be a month, two months, and then it follows like a flu sequence where as the winter in Northern Hemisphere wraps up, this goes away, that's going to be very different from if it continues to get worse and there's further quarantines or more work from home. I also do want to throw in the piece about human resilience as well. Like there's tons of research on we bounce back and we adjust really quickly. So I wouldn't be surprised too if people also start to adjust to kind of a new normal. I think Candace is totally right though that how do we really stay mindful of the best practices that we're starting to see people put in place to manage mental health and isolation and burnout and don't kind of let that fall by the wayside as we adjust to what might be a new normal, at least in the short to medium term. Well, it feels like you posed the question, so good time to answer it now. So how do you do that? How do you maintain that mindfulness that you may have now about your work-life balance and working from home? How do you maintain that over time? I think it's a kind of, you know, it's an individual coping strategy for really, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Like I know for me, having a partner at home that is constantly aware of when I'm working after hours and then kind of badgering me about, we're going to go watch that episode of Narcos and uh, (laughs) you're taking up time off the clock, you know, having something just to relax, not not stressful. I go to an escape world where yeah, I'm all Great British Baking Show. <laughs> Only the Great British Baking Show in times of stress. <laughs> Reality shows are good too, but yeah, just it's it, it, it's having those prompts around, and um, I've even seen you know suggestions to you know if you if you don't have a dog or a cat to consider fostering one because they get you outside of the house, they make sure you get up every day. Like when, when we live inside our home for long periods of time, like I think back to even summer break as a kid, like you don't even know what day it is. You don't know what day of the week it is. Like it, it can get kind of blurry. So having a regular routine and schedule is a really important part of kind of sticking to that. And I, I feel like I can definitely speak to that. So uh, I think Myra knows this, Candice, you know, you wouldn't because we've just met, but I'm bipolar. And so one, like routine is really, really hard for me to establish. Um, and I now have started working from home um, in the last few months. So I've had to make a special effort to go outside because I could so easily end up staying in here. And I feel it. Like uh, if I do like two days straight inside, I start to feel my kind of sanity start to fray a little bit. And I'm like, oh, I need to go outside. I need to look at the sky. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, so yeah. And I, even like showering, you know, things like that. I think when we work from home, we're like, oh, nobody's around or I can just turn my camera off and no one will see how, you know, 
how maybe unclean I am, but um, like, are you have- gonna put on real pants today? Are you gonna stay in your pajamas? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> they kind of look formal. I don't know. You know, so <laughs> those basic kind of self-care things or even just putting on like normal clothes. I've uh, I've had some set some talks with my my own partner about that. And he's like, why? You don't need to. And I'm like, I know, but there's a mindset that goes along with with wearing clothes that you would normally wear in the outside world. And it's also if you were to go outside, you're already set to go. It's not an additional barrier where it's like, okay, great. Now I got to get dressed and look presentable. I've personally found that going out and working in a coffee shop is great because you're around other people and kind of part of the world. And so that helps me not isolate when I, uh, when I work from home. Well, two pieces. One is that that line between work and life is blurring so much already. Even the concept of work-life balance, I think is sort of outdated because it is also integrated. And now this work from home adds a whole nother layer to that. So how do we get even more conscious of that? So we have some folks on on my team that were saying like, you know, I'm going to set alarms for when I'm done for the day, because I don't have these external signals, for example. Um, And I think we so often rely on, at least in the US, like on individuals sort of willpower to do these things and put these practices in place. So as much as possible as we can make it just the routine and the structure, whether that's having outside people uh, like your partner, Candice, or a teammate saying like, hey, have you taken a break today? <laughs> or have you done something else? Or this alarm is going to go off to remind me to eat lunch or to take a break. Like those things I think are more important now than ever and not just relying on our own kind of willpower to remember or to something wisely in the moment. I'm thinking about all the, um, we talked about kind of the anxiety that people are experiencing, the loneliness, um, you know, the um, sort of concerns about social justice as well, which was great to hear, by the way, Candice. Are there kind of specific, tangible kind of examples that you can speak to of things that people have been experiencing there? Uh, my team here in HR has been working like very hard to be proactive and um, not just putting a one a one-way communication out there, but having Slack channels internally that we can engage in a conversation. Um, so we have, like, since our work from home policy has been started, the amount of Slack channels that have been created has just skyrocketed. We have people that are participating in groups that are not related to work at all. Like some, some people just post recipes or what they ate for dinner that night or our dog's Slack channel is incredibly popular because it's just a nice break from the day. Um, so if, if anything, having us as HR professionals out on these channels and being aware of what kinds of things are on the minds of our employees is the best way to kind of stay in front of it and be in tune with it. Um, and it's really, really worked to our advantage. I love that because it also speaks to the human need for community. Like, it's almost like now that we can't necessarily interact in person, we're realizing how much we need that. And so finding these sort of new ways of interacting, whether that's, you know, we have a lot of Slack channels as well that have become very popular, or people having these sort of like WhatsApp group conversations that they might not have been having, or more FaceTiming, or I know Zoom's stock, for example, is through the roof. It's like the only one, right? I think it's really highlighting our need for lots of connection and collaboration, which is hopefully something that will kind of persist even once this is 
this is done. As you're talking, something occurred to me, and it's maybe not a well-formed question, but the word displacement came into my head. And people have, you know, a place that they're used to going every day. Many people do. And they are suddenly displaced. And there are other people kind of across the world, other situations where people deal with, you know, displacement, you know, in an extreme example, perhaps as a, you know, as a, as a refugee. And I was wondering, are there, are there any things that we would typically see when someone feels displaced from a mental health perspective? And Candice, I'd love your thoughts on this too. What we typically see when someone goes through any type of big stressor or trauma, whether that is kind of on a personal level um, or on a societal level, is that we're going to expect as mental health professionals to see an escalation of mental health symptoms. Like people will have stress, anxiety. Sometimes people will have nightmares, flashbacks, kind of all the things that we typically associate with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Like that's fairly common in terms of psychological responses to high stress. What's also common is that it goes down over time because we're resilient, we adjust, we cope, we adapt. Um, And then obviously for some folks, it's going to stay high and that's where kind of PTSD treatment is really warranted. So I think we're even starting to see some of those same things with really high anxiety, fear reactions, startle responses. People are scared to go out of their houses, right? They're avoiding places. Like that's all really common reactions to trauma, to high stress situations. Yeah, I would agree. And um, if you think about, you know, displacement is is kind of a form of grieving, actually. I mean, you're losing something. And what we tend to see, both in people that have encountered trauma and people who are grieving, is kind of a, a any kinds of activity that they can grasp onto to feel a sense of control in their life. Um, this is how, like, you know, in an extreme end or an extreme case, we might see someone with like obsessive compulsive disorder who's performing rituals in order to calm themselves. And you can sometimes see that with, you know, people once they're adjusting to something like displacement where they may have rituals, they may have a routine, they may have something that gives them that sense of I'm feeling grounded and I feel safe, even though you know, it, it may or may not be actually giving that. So maybe back to your point, James, of like, what are we seeing? One thing that almost fits that description to me is people's almost obsessive checking of news and social media to get as much information as possible, which we see, it really resonates. I've done a lot of work in OCD or other anxiety disorders. People want that certainty. They want those answers. So like checking news sites multiple times a day, checking social media sites multiple times a day, and not always the most reputable sources. And I think people are searching for that certainty and that anxiety reduction. And actually what's happening is their anxiety is skyrocketing as they do more of that. So I've certainly had a lot of folks I'm talking to about how do you put restrictions around that? How do you pick your one or two places that you know are reputable and you check them once or twice a day and no more? Otherwise, it becomes this kind of overwhelming compulsive checking. So you gave some great examples there of somebody with OCD maybe getting more into an sort of obsessive routine. So if I'm a HR professional or a manager or a leader, what kind of things should I be looking for in employee behavior that tells me like, hey, maybe that person needs, you know, some additional support, attention, whatever it might be? So what we typically think about from the mental health side is like if you're evaluating if someone's re- Uh, behavior is responsive or adaptive is, is it in line with what most people are doing, right? So with OCD contamination and people are washing their hands every 10 minutes, it's pretty clear that that's out of line with what most people are doing, even if there's a lot of variation within that. I think what becomes tricky in situations like this, where everybody's behavior is shifting and that 
um, like the spread of behavior is very different. So more people are engaging in more hand washing, but I and just use that as an example, but to look at again, that extreme, is it really more than what kind of the average person is engaging in or significantly more than what the recommendations are? And is there a lot of distress associated with it? Because there's a big difference between I'm going to wash my hands now much more often than I did before, but I'm not necessarily going to be really panicked or distressed around it. It's like, what's the functional response? Yeah. Yeah. I'll add to that too. You know, a lot of what we look for as, as clinical psychologists is um, what we call an impairment in functioning. Um, so uh, this could mean like you're not able to work or you're significantly impaired in your work because you're too busy washing your hands um, that you can't get work done. Um, so you might look at someone's productivity and if you see significant declines, um, or just kind of general inability to focus, um, those could be, uh, some potential indicators. So I think if I were to sum those up as a, as a manager or an HR leader, I'm looking for how far outside kind of the current norm is someone's behavior. We might all be panicking a little bit, but if someone's kind of you know, running around screaming, they're panicking a lot more than other people. That was obviously a silly example, but hopefully just to illustrate the the extreme or potential extreme or um, looking for where maybe somebody's performance drops significantly, you know, than the norm. And I think in both cases, what, what I'm hearing is like, think about where they usually are. Think about where everybody currently is and look for people who are, you know, kind of way outside the, the norm there. And those are the ones that might need, might need help. And I think one of the hard things for HR too is, people might still be functioning well at work and that might disguise functioning difficulties in other areas. So given the priority that people give to work, it's like all their energy goes into kind of maintaining functioning in that one area and other parts of their life might start to, to slip. And so um, as much as possible, how do you open up that conversation to get a sense of how is someone doing generally as well? Like how's their family coping? If they're a parent, how are their kids? How are they managing that? Like opening up those conversations so that you get a better glimpse into the full person. Yeah. So talking to people, right? I know. Basically, <laughs> Wild it, suggestion. It, it's, it's one of those things though, that um, just in my experience working in multiple companies, it's a, it's a very um, terrifying conversation to have if you're not, you know, mental health professional. And even for some mental health professionals, it can be a little terrifying. So um, to ask about someone's mental health, um, I, I know there are a lot of people that worry about the legal risks around that. So like a lot of being cognizant you want to be caring, you want to check in, you want to be empathetic. Um, but at the same time, how do I respect someone's privacy? Um, if you know, they're going through something and they don't need my, you know, help as a manager or trying to work through this. To me, I feel like, you know, you don't have to ask about somebody's mental health. Uh, you could simply show human care about how somebody's, you know, how somebody's doing and acknowledge that, you know, hey, this is a really stressful time for everybody. So, you know, so much is is changing. I just want to check in with you and just hear like what's your experience of going through this these changes right now? Like what what are you noticing that's like different for you in the way that you behave? And just, you know, show care, open up a conversation and then see what comes of it. And ultimately if somebody shuts you down, it's like, no, everything's absolutely fine. Like I'm doing great. You know, while in reality their their life is falling apart. That's not on you as a manager, like you're reaching out to do the right thing. 
you know, somebody has to step into that. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, a lot of research out there too, um, about managers being vulnerable with their own teams. The most important thing that I've taken just from my work at tech companies in the past few years is that manager is a very, very important part of someone being in the company long-term because they set the tone and they also help set the cultural expectations around working from home or productivity or how we book, how we feel about mental health days. I think um, uh, Google's project Oxygen, big part of that, which was trying to prove that managers didn't matter. So like they didn't need all these layers of unnecessary managers and, you know, lots of quantitative, qualitative data, you know, a year, a whole bunch of very smart, you know, quants, data scientists and the like. And they found kind of basically the big conclusion was managers matter. And retention was one of the big things. I would say if you are a manager who you know, knows that you should connect kind of on a human level with people, but has found that kind of difficult in the past, maybe this is a door that opens for you because it's an unusual situation where manager reaching out and just starting a conversation about how somebody's doing kind of should feel like a sane, normal thing to do. It's not like, un- it's not unusual, like a good human being would do that. So maybe this is the door that you can walk through to to connect more with your employees. And I think not underestimating the power of planting that seed or just letting people know the door is open. Not everyone will run through it and open up, but just knowing that you brought it up and that you're open to it, I think that can be a game changer for so many people. Even if that's all it is, just, hey, I want to know how you're doing. My door is always open. That can be huge for people. While we're talking about people who are, you know, maybe having a hard time, I put a post on LinkedIn yesterday or maybe a day and a half ago. And it was like, hey, don't forget to thank your HR person right now because they're going through a lot. And it was one of those posts where it just kind of blew up, you know, in terms of the number of people who like liked it and the you know, number of people who ended up seeing it. So what should we all be thinking about in terms of supporting our HR teams going through this? That's a really good question. I can't agree more with the expression of gratitude. In HR, we do a very thankless job. And not only that, we're usually the not fun. I say this to my boss all the time. We have the not fun job because we have to say no a lot of times. And we don't want to say no, but a lot of times we have to. And so to express appreciation um, and recognition for what these HR teams are doing across the world to accommodate people and to make sure they're safe, in my eyes, is is more than enough and would be a very, very welcomed. Nice. So if you're a manager or leader out there, dropping by your HR team and you know finding a sincere way to say thank you. And I will echo that. I mean, we've we at Modern Health are very fortunate to work with a lot of companies globally. And just the response from the HR professionals that we work with has been astounding, like just above and beyond even kind of what they're required to do in terms of response. It's just like the genuine amount of caring that they have for their employees, I think is just astounding. So I will echo the gratitude. And also, I think for helping professions in general, which I think a lot of HR folks, mental health folks are, we there's a lot of caring outward. And so making sure too that People are HR professionals, mental health professionals, healthcare workers that are kind of on the front line of coronavirus are also taking care of themselves. And what can we do to support them, whether that's sort of checking in on how they're doing as people as well, maybe setting up systems where they can take care of themselves, breaks, I don't know, giving people gift cards or something like something that sort of promotes taking care of themselves as well. So then I'll take this opportunity, Myra, to say thank you for the work you are doing to build a network of coaches and therapists that people can lean on 
as they go through this very difficult time to help them get the support that they need. So I'd like to recognize you for that. Thank you. I wasn't angling for a thanks I know myself, you were. <laughs> I do appreciate it. I know that was a hor- that was that made me horrible for you. And Candice, I'd like to thank you for the work you're doing to build programs within Twitter um, to support people's wellness, particularly their mental wellness, as they go through you know this difficult uh, time, and you know that allowing there to be a platform on which you know a lot of information, you know about this illness is flowing and a lot of connection is, you know, happening. So thank you. We talked about lots of the so challenges that are facing people. We've talked about some of the things that that are happening that kind of are helping people with their mental health, like the dog channel, as an example. If I'm sort of an HR person, maybe listening to this, what kind of programmatic, systematic solutions should I think about putting in place? Like, what are you seeing is is working? Um, we've kind of diversified a lot of our plans and they, they are constantly in flux too. That's a thing. So, um, Twitter works with modern health and, uh, they've already gotten plenty of phone calls from me saying, we need this. Oh wait, no, we don't need that anymore. We need this. We need, <laughs> and so, uh, they've been very, very patient and understanding <laughs> with, with whatever, you know, our request is at that moment. But, um, to have the ability to offer support to your employee in whatever forum or medium that might take place. And that's one of the reasons we do use modern health is because the coaching aspect, the counseling aspect, um, it, it works on that continuum of meeting people where they're, where they are. And then we also think about, you know, within our company of, um, how people are taking care of their children, um, or do they have, appropriate office equipment in their home so that they're not developing back injuries and things like that from working at their couch uh, all day. So it's one of those things where when you um, think about your employee, you have to think about kind of like everything they interact with and what has changed in their life on that day-to-day basis um, and how you can support it. We, We probably can't fix everything, um, but we can definitely support our employees in, in, helping them maintain some kind of sense of normalcy. So I think one of the things I heard there was helping them with the logistics, like reducing the anxiety of, you know, sitting on the couch for, you know, for two months or, you know, not having the right equipment to do things. And I've seen other companies, you know, give stipends for, you know, internet or being able to go out and work in a coffee shop and and things like that. And so all those things that are kind of logistical needs you know to reduce the anxiety that that may come with them it's been actually a really good thing for for twitter actually because uh, one of our goals this year is actually to decentralize to have more people work online Um, so this kind of just forced a lot of our goals to happen a lot quicker and uh, we just had a company-wide meeting either last week or the week before jack held and it was completely online and it was probably one of the best uh, company-wide meetings we've had because everyone was able to participate. Um, it wasn't just feeling like it was San Francisco-based, um, and people in San Francisco can in San Francisco can ask the question. So, Maya, on your side, apart of course from adopting modern health, uh, what should what should people be doing? So, I think a lot of what we've been 
talking to um, the HR leaders we work with is around social isolation and loneliness and how to keep people connected to their teams. So we've seen a lot of really interesting strategies come up. So, um, and one thing we've actually implemented at our office as well is having each team have just a standing daily Zoom meeting where they can call in, but also making it open to other teams. So you can almost still get that water cooler effect where you can just kind of pop in and get some face-to-face time. A lot of teams are even just having that on for several hours and people can just pop in and out. And it's almost like you're working next to each other. So you can ask a question for those social connected pieces. Um, So I think a lot of those types of social support measures um, we have now, like my team has like an open doors office hours, essentially, where if anyone's feeling stressed, they can come in, we can practice mindfulness or listen to a song, whatever it might be. But I think we have to start to be a lot more intentional about those spontaneous meetings that might have just taken place. Like I'm even noticing for myself, my core team and the people I work with closely, it doesn't feel like we've missed a beat, even though half of us are remote. But for folks that I'm just used to seeing in the hallway, I don't necessarily know how they're doing or kind of see them day to day. So kind of just popping in, being more intentional about checking in with people. So what I heard you say is that you, we need to systematically create more spontaneous meetings. <laughs> right. It's not, it's not, it's not <laughs> so weird to say, because it, it's, it's one of the things that feels impossible, but I think this is also kind of forcing companies like Slack, like Zoom, like Workplace, whatever that might be, to have those buttons on there to create more of that spontaneous reaction. So like my manager, if she if she knows I'm not in a meeting, she just calls the phone button or put, pushes the phone button next to my name on Slack and calls me right then. Another reason that you should not be in your pajamas um, all the time <laughs> is if your manager wants to talk to you right now. <laughs> you know, I love those ideas, um, you know, both kind of addressing those logistical concerns as well as finding ways to connect people more. Because I think in many ways, both pay dividends, you know, not just now, but in the future as well. A more connected team, I think, will always outperform a team that you know doesn't have those strong social bonds. Yeah. And there's actually, I think, a study that came out of Google as well. They looked at their remote teams and what made them efficient. Uh, and the most efficient ones, the ones that were the most productive, had that communication really strong. And they had, you know, team working norms of this is how we work. Um, and, th- and that's one thing that we've suggested to our own teams internally is to think about what are your own team cultural working norms? Like for Myra, you know, they have a, a Zoom meeting at least once a day. That's an important part of them to stay connected and on the same page. So are there other team working norms? Like if you're away from your desk, do you tell your team uh, or do you change your status on Slack or, you know, whatever that might be so that we're all on the same page and we're communicating the same way? I joked about the systematic spontaneous meetings, but like another way to think about it is you need to build, start to build those into your culture. And by culture, I mean the things that you just automatically do. And when you're starting something new in a culture, it is a little bit forced. It is a little bit planned, but if it's valuable and uh, kind of well done, eventually it does become part of the culture and it becomes automatic and they, they truly are spontaneous meetings at that point. I'm really uh, keep jumping to this idea of desirable difficulties. And so desirable difficulties is a concept from cognitive psychology, where like, if you have to write notes by hand, instead of typing them, it's a little bit harder, you have to think a little bit more, you actually remember better. And that's what's kind of coming up for me is that there are these challenges that were faced, like teams are not easily connected to each other, so that we have to actually try a little bit harder, we have to put some norms in place. And I think that's gonna, to your point, pay off as we 
we prioritize that connectedness because we have to now when we could have just taken it for granted before. Are there any other things that you think businesses, leaders, HR people, managers, et cetera, could or should be doing at this at this time? I would say, uh, you know, one thing I look to is if we have, you know, a group of champions within the company, whether that's your company ambassadors or your wellness champions, um, I have a group of resiliency champions. So these are employees that are particularly passionate about a particular issue and whether that's wellness or another uh, or the culture itself that's being carried throughout your company. Um, to try and see if you can use them to get feedback on how things are going, like have them serve as a focus group for you um, and use that feedback to help you implement new programs. And then they can also help encourage people to use them. Um, I think the biggest challenge, and like we were saying, incorporating any new change, new behavioral change into a culture is to make it more accepted and just keep trying it. And so when you have people that are cultural uh, ambassadors within the company, they can kind of help encourage that behavior um, when maybe if there wasn't someone, there weren't more people doing it, it'd be a little more challenging. I'd add as well, given how much uncertainty there is and how much things are changing, what we've seen be really impactful is just early and often and open communication. How can you share as much as you know, as much as is going to change as early as possible so people have at least some sense of do I know for now that work from home is indefinite? Do we have a potential end in sight? What are, how is management thinking about this? How is leadership thinking about this? Um, I think fear exists in the dark and as much light as we can shed on it, I think the better. Um, and I think this kind of harkens back to what Candace was saying before, particularly for kind of groups that maybe are more at risk. So we've been talking a lot about folks who have the freedom and the luxury to work from home. That's not the case for, for a lot of different types of jobs or a lot of different types of employees. So how can you provide as much kind of context and support and reassurance to those groups as possible, um, as much as you're able to do within the confines of kind of your business requirements. We have mentioned a few times that there's positive change in terms of companies, you know, employees that is going to come through uh, this, this event. What are some of the things that are top of mind for you in terms of those positive changes? Um, I know for us, we we already had kind of a group of remote employees um, that we're definitely in the minority. We don't have a lot of remote employees, but we still do have some. And um, the sentiment a lot of the time was um, that uh, people who work in offices don't necessarily understand the remote experience. Um, or if you're having a meeting in an office, um, they don't think about, you know, what way the, the camera is angled or how close in is, is it so that I can see your face and see your nonverbal communication. And so to have that kind of as an empathy building experience for people who do not um, have the ability to go into an office or work remotely most of the time, I think has been a really strong um, experience. Uh, and I know for me, um, I actually ended up doing a pilot in the fall with my own team where we worked from home as an empathy building experience. Um, and I loved it so much that I ended up just sticking remote. It's one of those things I think we were afraid of, or a lot of people are afraid of going fully remote because we don't know if we have the self-discipline or we're afraid we'll get lazy or people will perceive us as lazy. Um, so to, to have that experience of just trying it and maybe this is for you and maybe it isn't. But if it is, that could be life-changing. It could prevent burnout. It can 
give, give you more productivity. A lot of studies show that productivity actually increases when you work from home. Um, but at the same point, it can also just show you that, hey, maybe this isn't for me. And there's, here's the reasons why, but I at least understand my coworkers now when they're getting frustrated in terms of our communication or what is it that, that they need from me that would be helpful. I think two big areas jump out for me. The first is we know that anxiety, burnout, stress has been reaching just these incredibly high levels before this started. So I think if one positive thing that can come away from this is we can't ignore it anymore. I think stress is so so noticeable and tangible in society right now that we're sort of forced to look at it. And ideally, we then as a society start to destigmatize it, start to think about it, talk about it more and start to create more change around it, whether it's getting easier access to therapy, more resilience tools, et cetera. So I think that's one change that I'm I'm hopeful will come out of this. And then the other piece is kind of another theme that we've been talking about, humans need connection. Um, and we, I think, have been increasingly feeling isolated from each other. And again, this just highlights it and highlights our need for the opposite. Um, and so I'm hopeful that kind of as a society, we prioritize connecting with other people, whether that's in person or in these new remote ways that we're, we're trying out. I think it's so interesting to think about if this had happened five years ago, even, or two years ago, and we didn't have all these tools, like this would be a very, very different situation. So we're very fortunate to have these technologies that allow us to connect. And so how do we, how do we use them to connect with each other? So right, uh, you know, worldwide disaster at the right time is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I it's choose that. Words, time, that's, yes. that's a good, well said. <laughs> I don't know that there's any good time, but I'll I'll, I'll play the optimist today. It has to happen at some point. May as well be now, right? As we come towards wrapping up here, I want to give you each the opportunity to deliver one message to to HR, to managers, to a a leader, um, something that you want them to take away from this and, and maybe take action on. So I'll let you choose who's going to go first, but... Uh, I'd love to hear what that message is. I think for me, it's that we're all human at the end of the day. And I think this type of event kind of really brings that home. And so how do we remember that in every interaction we have with people? How do we treat people as humans, try to understand their needs, see their needs, whether that means just reaching out and asking how someone's doing or thinking more systemically, what are the practices and the systems and the policies to put in place to allow people to do their best work and be their best selves. I'd say, um, you know, to the HR professionals, uh, you are doing the best you can with the time and resources that you have available to you. Damn um, right. And I can't emphasize that enough. Like we, you know, during times like this, we are getting asked for the world and we want, we want to deliver. Most of us, I would think are people pleasing um, and we're helpers. Um, but you have to be able to recognize what your limitation is and it's probably not, you know, within your control. Um, so just do the best you can. Um, the same thing to managers too, that are just kind of helping their employees through this time. I mean, just do the best that you can and be, be a real person, you know, not that people aren't being a real person, but be vulnerable, share what's going on, you know, in your life and how you're dealing with this and be the example to your team, um, that you would like them to be. Um, so yeah, that's what I would, that's what advice I would give. Well, I, I want to take Candice, what you said and, uh, echo to the HR professionals in my life. You all know who you are. Um, 
I agree, agree with Candice that you are doing the best job you can right now. Uh, you are all good enough and you're all stars in my book. Candice, Myra, I want to say thank you um, for your time today. Um, and please keep doing the amazing work that you're doing to support the communities you're supporting right now. Thank you so much. And, and thanks for this podcast on bringing these issues to light because it's not talked about enough. It's not. It's not. And thank you. Thanks so much, James. Really appreciate it. Take care, Myra. Thanks. I hope you found this episode of Silent Superheroes useful. As of March 2020, COVID-19 feels like a big deal to a lot of people around the globe. Colleagues where you work may be experiencing anxiety in a number of ways. Personal concern about them or their loved ones getting sick. Changes in social norms around work, public events, schooling, and broader concerns about stability and impact on society, for example, the economy. Anxiety isn't the only impact to mental health that we're seeing coming out of coronavirus. If you and your colleagues have defaulted to working from home for the first time, they may be experiencing social isolation because they aren't seeing people every day. Candice and Myra shared some really great examples for mitigating some of these effects. And don't forget, there are a lot of upsides to come out of this situation. I can't tell you how hard it has been for me to get people who work in an office to understand what it's like to be remote. This incident's going to help build that empathy for a lot of people. Likewise, as Myra points out, we are a resilient species and we'll come out of this better able to weather a storm like this in the future. And lastly, maybe people will learn the importance of connecting human to human as a result of being forced apart for a period of time. Because... As sophisticated as our society is, we're still a tribal species, and we still need to feel wanted and valued by others. If you enjoyed what you heard in today's episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you'd like to hear about new episodes as they're released, you can either go to silentsuperheroes.com and sign up for our newsletter, or you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash silent superheroes. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit IASP.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash. To help others find the Silent Superheroes podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service.